Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Trevor Marshall. He's the co-founder and CTO of Current, a fine fintech company, also our landlord here at Risk Versal Media. Trevor, welcome back. Thank you. Still on time payments. It's good. Uh, that's kind of the way we do things around here. Listen, man, we have so much to talk about today. Like today this is, is big Bitcoin one. Day. Okay, so we are recording this. It is on Tuesday, it's a little before noon. Bitcoin's up 5%. Coinbase is screaming up 15%. A U.S. court paves the way for the first Bitcoin ETF. We're going to talk all about that. There's also, interestingly, this week, there was a bunch of proclamations by some, I don't know, I guess you could say prognosticators about the price of Bitcoin, all kind of bullish. Maybe this thing was, I don't know, leaked out a little bit or something like that. But it seems like some folks were positioning in front of that. And there's a whole host of other things in and around payments that we want to get to. And you're the guy to talk about all that. But also stick around after my conversation with Trevor. I sat down the other day with David Haber. He is the general partner at A16Z and he is their fintech lead over there. Brilliant guy. We had a great conversation. We also were joined by the CEO and co-founder of Setpoint. David led the Series A of Stuart Wall's company. He is the co-founder and CEO of Setpoint. And they are a platform that enables all sorts of capital markets activities in and around the real estate um, space. That was a great conversation. We hit a lot of stuff in fintech. We hit a lot of stuff about capital markets. We hit a lot of stuff about interest rates. And we hit a lot of stuff, a, a conversation that I had with you and your co-founder, Stuart Sop, uh, CEO of Current, about the New York City fintech ecosystem. So that was um, a great convo. All right. Bitcoin. It's having a day. Last time you were on the pod, I think it was a few weeks ago, we were talking about its kind of inability to get meaningfully above 30,000. And then we had this really precipitous drop. It went from maybe 31,000 or so down to 26,000. Let's just kind of lay the groundwork a little bit of why you think we've seen this summer so much volatility. And again, it's not the sort of volatility that we've seen over the last few years where the thing could drop 10,000 points in a straight line or rally, but they're big moves after a long period of not a whole heck of a lot of volatility. So talk to me a little bit about the asset class, how you're thinking about it. And now it really seems like when you have the SEC suing to block an ETF, but you got futures here and you got all these big financial services companies really making applications for Bitcoin ETFs. What's going on here? And are we going to start hearing a lot more about Bitcoin after a long period of basically not hearing a lot about it? Look, I come from both perspectives as someone who's traded Bitcoin and crypto for a while, but also someone who's been very close to the technology. And I think in both cases, you've got on the trading side, like very te strong technical signals for why this should break out in either direction. And, and that move lower was most likely a, an attempt at breaking the triangle lower. You know, after tremendous periods of this, these quiet periods, it, it always comes back to All life. Right, so you were a macro trader in your prior life as a fin before being a fintech founder. And do you think that Bitcoin, as you've observed it, as it got to, let's say, a half a trillion market cap on its way to a trillion, does it have the attributes of other, let's say, macro risk assets that you used to trade when you were at a large investment bank? Yeah, very brief experience at the beginning of my career. I've actually spent way more time in, in crypto. Than Trading actually crypto, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay, Before and yeah. after my time on Wall Street. The underlying, connecting to more of the technology side, the underlying has been there for a long time. But the utility of it is, again, once starting to emerge. And I think when you look at XRP, so Ripple reemerging as a, an actual useful technology being adopted potentially by the Bank of England and being deemed not a security, these are major steps in terms of de-risking the regulatory positioning, which has been the main thing that has kept a lot of folks away from this, even though now there are the rails in place. And I think the announcement of this spot ETF being possible pretty much guarantees you're going to see the Black Rocks and Fidelities come through with this thing. And then Grayscale will probably reapply and get it. But that's exciting because the rails for this, which is the, the custody systems that are required 
the liquidity and trading that's required to make this possible have been, now been in place for a couple of years. So with this regulatory clarity, I'm hoping that all the, the pieces are set up appropriately. Is there clarity though? I mean, like the SEC, a court overrules the SEC's finding on this, but the SEC is not done, right? Like they're going to come back on this sort of thing. And so let, let's bridge this together a little bit because for all the years that you've been trading it, you were probably trading on decentralized exchanges for a while. You've traded on plenty of regulated exchanges. You guys at Current offer the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin and Ethereum. There's plenty of ways for people to buy this thing, these digital assets, if you will. And it seemed like when BlackRock and Fidelity filed, I think it was earlier, was it in the spring? And we had that move from 20,000, I think, straight to like sort of 30,000. But then there was a lot of sideways action. Are you surprised that Bitcoin now is only up, let's say, 1,500 points on this news today. And I'm just, just give me a sense for, this is a great headline. It's rallying five, five and a half percent or so, but are we likely to see the SEC come back? Is it going to be mired in this kind of tit for tat? I think that's like exactly why it's not up further. I think to your point though, I mean, there's plenty of, if you want exposure to Bitcoin, you can get it pretty much anywhere in the US at this point and around the world. But it's hard to discount the legitimacy of a spot ETF that can be put into an IRA that can be thought of into a broader portfolio construction because you just can't set up the infrastructure if you're a larger institution with potentially retail or high net worth individuals. The mechanics and the legitimacy of this are significant. I mentioned market cap for a second. So Bitcoin right here is at 534 billion. Ethereum is 206. And then you have Tether and BNB combined. They're like 110 or something. And then you get to your XRP at 28.5 billion or something like that. The whole thing is about a trillion yeah. market cap. Yeah. So interestingly, and still down, let's call it 55, 60%, probably from the all-time highs, the total market cap, if you will. So you talked about utility, and this is one that, that I think that a lot of folks, probably normies like myself here and there, and, and maybe I know a little enough to be dangerous on the topic, but when, when you talk about utility, there's a couple different aspects of it, right? There's blockchain technology and the technology in general and the applications that can be built in and around it. And then there's just the utility of having this, th this digital currency, right? And that's the one to me that's fallen down a, a bit. You know what I mean? Like I have teenage daughters. I, I hear that the way they buy really good fake IDs is using Bitcoin, okay, and buying them from China. That seems like a really great use case if you're like an 18-year-old Cross-border yeah, like, payments. Yeah, like like all the illegal stuff, which was one of the easiest, easiest tropes about it in a way. And then folks like you used to say, most of the illegal activity that goes on in the world happens with US dollars and they're untraceable in all intents and purposes. So talk to me about that utility, more from putting your kind of CTO fintech CTO hat on right now, because some of the main pillars of the bull case seem to have fallen down over the last few years. The utility that we really saw over the last few years was mostly around how you can make something content addressable, aka you can actually look at the contents of an NFT or you can prove it without having to rely on a centralized system. And it has all sorts of really interesting implications for identity in particular. Um, especially as like uh, concerns around security and how you actually make sure that in a pseudo anonymous system, you can actually introduce some level of oversight and protection. The main use case for Bitcoin has been store of value, aka it's an escape valve from the fiat system, aka escape valve from the dollar. One of the more interesting recent developments that, that I continue to follow is just how lightning has been evolving. Um, All right, and, so let's talk about that because that, that seemed to be one of the more interesting things in yeah. and around Bitcoin. So this is like an application layer, correct? Yeah. And I remember like this woman, Elizabeth Stark, who ran the Lightning Network, like she was a big star back in 2000 and 2020, or excuse me, 2020 and 2021. And I'm not on the Twitter anymore, so I miss out on crypto Twitter, I'm sure. I'm missing out a lot there, but she was like a real star. This is something that a lot of folks used to point to is this is going to make it faster. This is going to make it something that a lot of people who might be intimidated by in interacting with this sort of digital currency, it's going to make it easier for them to yeah. do so. It's certainly not going to be something that consumers are thinking about. I think the closest to it you get is in certain consumer applications, you might see like a lightning address or a UI. And there's specific things that have just been released pretty recently. This technology called splicing that we can talk about which is an enhancement, but fundamentally for, for folks who don't know generally what Lightning is, it's the ability to have off-chain transactions, which is we know that 
uh, the, one of the the common statistics that's thrown around is, oh, there can only be seven Bitcoin transactions per second. And Visa does thousands, if not hundreds of thousands during peak seasons of transactions per second. Therefore, Bitcoin cannot be a realistic payment network, right? And so the way that Lightning works, and there's similar concepts on other chains, but basically you and I open up a relationship, let's say, and we both pre-fund that relationship. I put down one Bitcoin, you put down one Bitcoin. And then for any consumers that we have, or just directly between ourselves, we exchange that back and forth. I think the best analogy I saw online was like an hourglass, right? Sand just shifting back and forth, but fundamentally you're, you, you've got two pre-funded amounts. And this is the way that a lot of correspondent banking works from international where you've got Nostro Vostro like accounts at, at different institutions to do cross-border payments and do that for real-time settlement. So it's really just re-implementing a lot of the same concepts, but doing it in a way where as we finish our transactions, we go and leverage the security of Bitcoin which is we basically check in the receipt of everything we've done. And we do that in a way that we can prove that those things actually happened and it creates some level of security. Okay. So for that example that you just gave, like Bitcoin, which is meant to be a scarce asset because there's only so many of them, right? I get the utility of that. Okay. It's validating some sort of like financial activity and it's assuming taking out lots of middlemen and the like here and making things ultimately cheaper and that sort of thing. But if you are like a consumer who bought Bitcoin for censorship resistance and off-ramp to the fiat, this and that, whatever, and I don't mean to say it in a mocking manner whatsoever, but like there are plenty that do, right? Why would you ever transact in Bitcoin? Why, why would you ever take this scarce asset, right? And buy a pizza with it or something like that. Obviously the famous pizza that was like a, a billion dollar pizza in hindsight or something like that, right? Is that a logical argument like by somebody like me? If it's a store of value and, and it's scarce, do you know what I mean? Why would you ever spend it? I think that will come down to not really being something that a consumer thinks about. And it'll be something like in from a consumer last mile delivery, it would be presented to you by Square or by Current or someone who's like, what percentage of your net worth do you want outside of the US system? And you scale it up. Do you want 10% of it outside? Do you want 90%? Here are the risks associated with it. And then it'll be integrated with your overall payments for how liquidity works for you in the payment needs. And then maybe it's traveling over Visa rails and maybe it's traveling over Lightning rails. And I think ultimately what will drive that will be the economic incentives and the economic efficiency of those payments. In theory, these types of digital payments can be way more efficient than a Visa where you've got interchange and you've got other things. In practice, that just isn't the case yet. But as the technology evolves and as there are incremental improvements. Lightning, I think, is a step function improvement for Bitcoin in particular. But over time, that technology should be more efficient than from a payments and a reliability standpoint than some of the other systems that do have to support many middlemen have to support. There are a lot of mouths to feed. Well, let's take a step back because this is also something that has been in the news a little bit lately, like the unwind of Binance. And I thought this was really interesting. So Binance is what the largest exchange on, on the planet. Okay. And at the time, remember when all this stuff was going down with FTX, supposedly the CZ guy was like, they were going to, they, they were going to be their savior. This is probably, I want to say October. Does that make sense or so? And I'm sure a lot of folks like you who are very close to the industry and the players, like they were really setting them up like for all intents and purposes. And then they pulled the rug out from under them and, and then they went under famously. And a lot of folks were like, they have to be next. And so I, I read a headline, this, I think it was on CNBC last week, MasterCard ends Binance card partnership in latest blow to crypto giant. So what's going on with Binance and how do you have some of the largest exchanges on the planet, right? For the underlying cryptocurrency, they've all gone under it and they look like they, they look like criminals, right? For all intents and purposes. So who comes in and fills this void, if you will? Luckily, Coinbase is a US regulated. You've got, there are very, you got Gemini, you've got very legitimate players here in the US that you can audit. You can get all the necessary levels of oversight for you to have confidence in that. I think anytime you're looking at exchanges that are abroad, even if the trading is legitimate and the activity is legitimate, it's just it doesn't have the oversight that you would want to rely on. I think for, yes, there was an FTX US, but there was a lot of challenges that they were having for obvious reasons. And in hindsight, pursuing things like bit licenses and pursuing things that required a lot more oversight than was required abroad. When it comes to Binance, I think they've been a really important part of the ecosystem. I don't know over time if that is a positive <laughs> impact, negative impact, but they've certainly 
encouraged a lot of trading activity. They've certainly pushed forward with the BNB, like the smart chain that they have. They've pushed forward a lot of the the concepts that are important concepts. And and to be clear, there's like absolutely no accusations or I don't mean to assume that anything that Binance is doing is anything similar to what FTX, I mean, FTX clearly and simple looked like a classic Ponzi. And there was a lot of like illicit activity going on in between the intermingle of customer funds and what they were doing on a proprietary basis. But you mentioned something and it's interesting. And this is one of the things I've had a hard time getting my arms around is I remember when the SEC chair, Gary Gensler came in, it seemed like a lot of folks were really excited. So a few years ago, right? In 2020, a lot of people were excited because some of his works as an academic, I think he was at MIT, right? He seemed to be fairly open-minded about crypto. And they thought that this was going to usher in a, a period of, you know, you use that term guardrails, like there was going to be guardrails set. And therefore people like you could build within those guardrails, knowing that you're not going to be like looking over your shoulder. I don't mean you guys in, in particular, but here's a headline from Bloomberg just yesterday on August 28th, SEC's crypto dragnet widens to NFTs in case with media firm. Wall Street's main regulator expanded its crackdown on crypto products Monday by accusing a Los Angeles-based media and entertainment company of offering non fungible tokens that were really unregistered securities. Theory LLC raised $30 million from hundreds of investors through its NFT offerings. The SEC said the offerings should have been registered with the agency and that the impact theory had to agree to pay more than a $6 million uh, fine to settle these allegations. Talk to me a little bit about that because NFTs were very much part of the the zeitgeist in 2020 and 2021. And our friend Meltem, for instance, is like, yeah, they're like financial instruments, but we're in it for the culture and, and this and that. It was fun and people were having fun. But at the same time, they were watching the value of these things go higher. And so that that's fun when you can enjoy a community and you can enjoy a specific, whatever it's a piece of art or this and that, whatever, but it's also going up in value. It was less fun when there was no bid for them anymore. And now the SEC is over some of the companies all over them for like issuing them as unregistered security. So talk to me a little bit about that. And do you think we'll have any sort of excitement come back about NFTs or are you already seeing it in other ways, I guess? Yeah. Consumer harm drives a lot of regulatory action. And I think it was overly optimistic for us to hope for clarity outside of enforcement. And I'm not really sure what form that clarity will take. You're still seeing stuff even to the tax level of like, how do you interpret it, interpret gains or losses on crypto? If it's treated as property, does that mean you have to take the deduction in the year in which you realized it and offset it against? We're still not in a super clear space. I think the court ruling for the spot ETF, this is like a, hey, we actually might have a clear path to making this more legitimate from a regulated financial instrument perspective. But there's still a long way to go. And I think the rate at which the financial instrument is developing and the the types of financial instruments, it's unrealistic to think that there will be perfect regulatory coverage on them as these things emerge, because these are very new concepts. As enforcement has been dialed up here in the U.S. over the last few years, um, are you seeing other parts of the world that are actually like like embracing the sort of innovation and, and allowing for you know some of the stuff to happen in in an unfettered way? I don't think unfettered where it's useful. I think the U.K. has historically done a pretty good job with this. I think there's been a lot more development. There's been a lot more proper oversight or in some cases like less oversight in areas where it shouldn't be. So I think the UK has done a a decent job with it, but I don't think anyone's really gotten it right because it just isn't clear. Like it's hard for people to get their heads around exactly what it is. Like when I look at new developments, I have to really think through, okay, how does this thing work and what are the implications and how could people have harm caused to them, for example. When we start looking into the potential harm caused, which no one's really looking at yet, but the fact that everything is public and the privacy considerations associated with that, you could make arguments that there are privacy issues with how a lot of these systems work, which a lot of people who are in the space go, it's pseudonymous. There are mechanisms to, to prevent that from happening. But that's like an area for consumer harm that, you know, I, if I know your wallet address, I can probably pick up on your activity. I can probably understand more about who you are than you would be consenting to share. That stuff is like so far away from the consumer mindset because the applications aren't there yet. But that's something that like my mind is going towards that we don't even have coverage on yet. So it's going to be a while before we get 
the ways of operating dialed in correctly, like what the rules actually need to be. It's hard, man. You know, I kind of had a little fun with some NFTs and I was at a conference. I was at the Recode conference, I want to say maybe a year or two ago. And one of the sponsors was Johnny Walker. And they had this specific blend that they were going to give to all conference goers. And you had the ability to get this NFT and you had to download this app. And then you had to have your own digital wallet to accept the NFT. And I was looking around, I was like, all right, it's probably a good place for that. Most of those people probably have a Coinbase wallet or a MetaMask wallet or you know, something like that. Man, it's onerous. And then when you're given the option of walking out with like a green label special edition Johnny Walker or this NFT that might give you the right to do something. And you know what I mean? Like, and I'm an options trader, you know what I mean? I get all that sort of stuff or whatever. But it's just like, oh man, this is just overly complicated. You know what I mean? And then on the Twitter, do people still have their board apes up there? They spent 300 grand so they could have a, a PFP of a board ape. And that's probably worth 20 grand now. You know what I mean? If that, if there's a bid for them. So, yeah. Right. So I want to go, this is kind of also, I, I think one, one of the guys, I think that got things hyped up here and there in the space over the last few years was obviously Elon Musk. And this was a, it was labeled a scoop from Charles Gasparino, who I know and, and I like, he's a really good reporter over at Fox Business. But this was on Friday, I believe Elon Musk continues to have conversations with top Wall Street executives on the future of X. That is, I don't know if you know that, but that is Twitter now. It's X. It says he seems to be settling, they tell me, on a new failed, or on a new fangled, excuse me, but it will be probably failed, payment system, updated version of PayPal. It will offer low transaction costs as opposed to credit cards and monetize user info. Okay. So when you think about this, and I think you and I've talked a little bit about the everything app and what the barriers are in a regulatory environment like ours or a consumer environment like ours. What do you think about that? You know what I mean? Because you guys, you and Stu, you guys built a company where you had massive traditional incumbents that had plenty to lose as it related to digital payments. Then you had all of the fintechs that, that have been around prior to you guys. And you guys built something you, you knew that you were going to be you know, coming at it from multiple different flanks here a little bit. So how do you think about it now that a social network possibly wants to get into the payments game? I don't know, Elon. I've read PayPal Wars. and I know what the trajectory was there. It's a very similar playbook that he's probably trying to run. And I think he's been very like aware of the developments and payments from those days. And I think he he understands the potential for how big that could be for X if they get well, that right. So if you think about what Twitter is right now, this is a company that maybe had four and a half billion dollars in revenue the year before he took it over. Okay, primarily advertising revenue, right? And costs associated or, or fees associated with their access through API, okay? They were never able to monetize their user base anywhere near, let's say, uh, a Facebook was able to do and even Snap for that matter, okay? So when you think about, like, why do you think, and I'm not asking you to get in Elon's head, but why do you think that, like, a social network might be able to monetize through payments better than showing them ads. I don't know if you're on Instagram. Instagram is pretty brilliant at e-commerce. You know what I mean? Whatever algos they got going, whatever they're listening to, like I'm buying a few things there a week and I am not active on that thing. Like yeah. it is good. And I used to talk to people at Twitter. I'm like, you see what's going on over there. You have sports people, entertainment people, finance people, crypto people, like all these verticals, political people addicted to your platform. If you were to look at their screen time, they see how much time they're spending. Why aren't you figuring out how to do this through microtransactions or e-commerce or something like that. It was just, they were always focused on advertising. So I get it. Elon is like for 20 years been thinking about how to do this. But even if you look at what PayPal's model has slowed down fairly dramatically, and if you look at their margins and what they've been able to do. And so I, I don't know. I just don't know why they're going to be able to take what I think is a failing social network and turn it into a payments or e-commerce behemoth. If you're a failing social network, I also don't use Twitter or, 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 or X, so I, I don't have a great pulse on what the vibe is like on there. But if it is not doing well, then there's no shot at an advertising model being able to get to a $46 billion valuation or wherever in terms of what multiple do you put on the advertising revenue on that. If you're looking at, okay, if everyone already has X, who's ever going to have X, there, how much user growth is really there? And then what's your ARPU growth over time if you're able to figure out an advertising model? And they're really focused. I think like the one counter to that is if they're getting really good at this new AI, XAI, and that initiative there, could they be like be serving the types of ads that you're seeing on Instagram and and, and giving relevant and, and actually serving in like the Google function of intent capture? 
properly. Like if they're able to derive your intent based on what you're looking at and then properly connect you with commerce opportunities. I think maybe that's part of it. And in those cases, if you can control the payment mechanism and make that as seamless as possible, that's an accelerant on a model like that. But I think this is just a, we need to take a different tact. That's what it feels like to me. Like we need to take a different uh, approach to this. I think if you look at Square, X Twitter, in coming from a very similar mindset, they've taken a social approach which has resulted in them being able to acquire tons of customers for relatively low cost of acquisition through the social component of payments. And from there- Do you there, think so? I used to hear the Cash App advertises a few years ago in every podcast I listened to, yet I never heard anyone use it as a verb the way they would use Venmo or PayPal, okay? And I never actually ever paid anybody on Cash App. I never came across anybody who used it. And so to me, it almost seemed like a big fugazi in a way. You know what I mean? I, like, can, t- I can tell you confidently, based on the data that we have with, from our consumers, that Cash App is by far the most important P2P Really? So, all right, so let's talk about who your demo is real quickly, because I think that's really important. You're saying that I'm a 50-year-old near boomer and we're still using the blue Facebook page. Facebook.com. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what is that demo? And you've yeah. seen this and this has been consistent over the last few years? Oh, yeah. If anything, it's widening, like the gap between... Between Cash App and Venmo and others. Our demo, we serve Americans that have traditionally been underserved. So they have generally like less money or at least they're living more paycheck to paycheck. So they don't have the deposits that would make them valuable customers to some of the bigger banks. They've had negative experiences there and they're a lot younger. I think the average age on our platform is like 26, 27. And they use Cash App pretty much more than anything else when it comes to what the activity looks like. And I think what that indicates is just how successful Cash App has been at ease of use, making themselves relevant culturally. There, there's a lot of things that, that they've done. And so if I'm Elon and I'm looking at the success of that and say, I've got a huge social network, I've got the distribution already, I've got the network effect, can I take a stab at that? I wouldn't be surprised if there was a deeper integration between those two companies just based on the personnel. Yeah, but I think Jack and Elon hate each other now after this deal. That's Sincerely, think yeah. about it. He's literally tried to dismantle Jack's legacy as far as what that social network was since he took it over. They were definitely in agreement. Jack, when they sold, he believed that it should be like an internet protocol, right? For all intents well, and purposes. Well, then flip it on his head. It's a great way to be an adversary. Yeah. Um, which is, hey, I can do that too. I, yes. I don't know that's what, prob- you know. Well, that's probably, better, <laughs> that's probably a better motivation when yeah. you think about how he thinks about his relationship with Mark Zuckerberg. They've sparred over AI for years. And we also know that one of the levers that Facebook ultimately or Meta can pull to further monetize their massive, massive user base is payments. And we know that they've spent a lot of time thinking about crypto and, and the like here. So do you think that this is, again, I sometimes put my fast money hat on through the public markets. If Twitter is ever going to come back to the public markets as a viable, it's not going to be as a, a social network reliant on ad advertising. Look at how Snap is just dwindling away. You, you know what I mean? So it, there's going to have to be some sort of payments or some sort of financial aspect to it. There has to be a change. I think what are the available options? That's a playbook he knows. Yeah. And that's, it's a legitimate playbook in terms of you've got millions and millions of daily active users who are probably users of more tech-enabled solutions like Cash App and others. If you can create payments there, can you, one, just do like peer-to-peer and then monetize through transfers off of the system, which is really what Cash App does, is they, they charge you to instantly cash out to wherever your bank is? Or is there like a commerce element? Are they going to think through uh, how you actually can surface relevant information, relevant deals, and then provide the payment mechanism to make that super seamless? That's a legitimate playbook. But I don't see too many other ones, right? Like subscription for content. You've got Twitter blue. You know, you know right? they're, they're yeah. talking about literally that like less than 2% of Twitter users have subscribed dollars a month or whatever. It's interesting that, that you mentioned that like in-app purchases have gotten really easy. So like you could be sitting in bed, you could be scrolling Instagram, you could get a reel on something, then you could get an ad and then you swipe up, you say shop now let's say you double tap on that thing, you can hit a Apple Pay if you're using an iPhone. I'm sure that on your phone, you have an Android, whatever the Samsung Pay is or, or anything like that. Shopify, and they're all preloaded. Like literally you can transact in under a minute, you know what I mean? And have it all set. It, it's pretty fascinating. That's to me, and I've been saying this again, I just said it a few minutes ago. I was saying this to the Twitter people that I knew for years. This is it, man. That was the opportunity and they had your attention. 
whether it was over the 2020 election or whether it was over COVID or whether it was messy or whether it was the thing that you're into that you were like obsessed about Twitter on, like they just never serve relevant ads. And to your point, so maybe XAI is the thing that helps them get there and put it all together. Again, I don't have to think about it. It's not a publicly traded company. It probably won't be for a while. There's going to have to be a totally new story. All right. The last question I have before we get out of here, well, we just spent a little time talking about Square and PayPal. Okay. Here's a, two companies that look for all intents and purposes similar. I, I know that they compete on a bunch of things. They do a bunch of different things. Okay. A combined $100 billion in market cap, both down about 80 some percent or more from their all-time highs in 2021. And they have about a combined $50 billion in sales, okay? And they're both trading at really ridiculous multiples. On a multiple of sales, we just do the combined, it's two. At some point, that was probably close to 20, right? If you think about it, what do you think the public markets are, are getting wrong about fintech right now? Because it seemed like if you were an AI chip maker, and NVIDIA is the, the easy example, but there's a whole host of other much smaller market cap companies that have just done really well. There's just a lot of market cap that's been assigned in the last six to nine months in the public markets to in and around AI. But fintech, which we know that, and you and I have had these conversations about what you guys are doing at Current, you guys have spent a lot of time and energy and resources in around machine learning and AI for years. Why do you think the public markets are not appreciating this with, let's say, some of these large fintech players that are publicly listed? I think like the just definitional answer is growth. They don't believe in the growth, right? If you're trading at 2x sales or whatever it is, then it's okay. There's going to be no ARPU expansion. There's going to be no user growth. You're capped out, whatever it might be. And I think if there's something to get wrong, it's going to be around the ability to expand your the revenue per user on a lot of these platforms, which is basically taking down higher margin lines of business and integrating them within sort of their systems. And what it's what I think the market is saying is we don't believe you can do that, or we don't believe that there's any growth left for you in terms of new customer acquisition or re-engagement of old customers. To your earlier comment, that point of sale and owning that has been one of the more interesting things. To me, Shopify. You just read my mind. I literally, my fax set machine just pulled up Shopify that, that has a $72 billion market cap, okay, on less than $7 billion in sales. What's funny, the sales, you had the big pull forward in 21, you know what I mean? It's gone from basically four and a half billion to 6 billion to 7 billion. It's not like that's good growth, but it does it deserve to trade 10 times sales. You know what I mean? I think people are seeing what you're seeing, which is that last mile. Who's controlling it? Like Shopify's shop pay is brilliant. The fact that pretty much, I don't know, five out of the last six e-commerce stores that I've used have run down to Shopify rail. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can just log in. Oh, and there's my address and there's my card. And I got the text message in it. Isn't it funny how impressed we are? You build these systems and you're impressed by yeah. it. And yeah. But, the, but that's the thing. It's just like these obvious things where you needed to have the right positioning. So when Shopify first listed, what I was really excited about was they had this framework called Timber, which made it really easy to launch like a Shopify store and make it look awesome, which was like this open development framework. And for, so from the beginning, I've been a very strong Shopify like proponent because I thought that they approached things with the right sort of eye towards platform the right eye towards development. And luckily I, I bought some of that early on, probably sold it too soon, but I've always seen Shopify as being someone who's had uh, their eye on this longer game. And I think you're giving credit towards what they've been able to demonstrate with ShopPay. I think there's definitely credit that's due. And I think there's probably credit that's owed on some of these other fintechs for their ability to ramp up into higher margin lines of business. I think that's very possible. Like we're able to do that at our scale. And I think that's something that's very realistic is bringing in lending, bringing in sort of these higher margin financial product lines and distributing it to a wide group of users. It's funny, you just mentioned at your scale for current, I was talking to Stuart, I think last week, and, and I think he said to me, you guys have over four and a half million customers. And when we think about that, I, I just think about it like that is scale. Like when you said earlier that we look across our customer base and where you're seeing this transaction, I mean, not like that's really good data real time. Yeah, no, like that's, that that's, sort of that's uh, uh, yeah. statistically relevant on a tenth of a size. Listen, man, we covered a lot of ground. The crypto stuff we have not done a lot of late. So I'm really, uh, and there's a lot of news here. So I, I hope we'll have some updates on all of this over the next few weeks. So I hope you'll come back and we'll talk about that. And I, the fintech stuff to me, I love because I was an early adopter. I'm always looking for something better and slicker and, and all that sort of stuff. And it seems to be, there's a lot out there. I'm not sure I'm waiting for 
X, formerly known as Twitter, to be the one to trust with my financials and the like here, but we'll see how that one um, plays out. So Trevor, thanks for being here with me. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll stick around for my conversation with David Haber of A16Z and Stu Wall of Setpoint. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am joined here today by David Haber. He is the general partner at A16Z, focused on fintech, and Stuart Wall, who is the CEO and co-founder of Setpoint. Welcome, guys, to the pod. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. All right, this is really interesting for me, David. You are here in New York City. I think a lot of people think of your firm as very Sand Hill Road. You guys are right smack dab in the in, in the middle of it here. But you've uh, reopened an office here, right? You guys did have a, a presence here, I think, pre-pandemic. We did, yeah. We had a small office in the city for about five years, but we opened a much larger space in the last few weeks, actually, in Soho, and now have, I think, 80 full-time people in New York wow. City. So a real presence in the city have planted the flag. Yeah, and, and you are obviously uh, fintech-focused, but it seems like the craze of 2023, which is AI, is working its way into like almost every single vertical. And I think pretty soon we're not going to be thinking about it as its own thing. It's going to be how it's seeping in. And I'm sure, Stuart, you have probably a lot to say when you think about the platform that you guys have built. I, I know this is one of the things as like a public markets guy, when I'm thinking like the CNBC audience, we're like, wait, all of these companies have been spending the big platform companies billions and billions of dollars on machine learning, which is, you know, very much the thing that we're all crazed about right now. And again, Stuart, you are here in New York and we're going to talk about set point and what you do, it seems like the perfect place to sort of be. You started the company a few years ago. David, A16Z, led your Series A late last year, and we're going to get to all of that. Again, guys, welcome. David, really quickly, like going over some of the notes in the background here, it seems like your background as a founder and and some of the stuff that you've done, obviously, in VC since then, and Goldman Sachs Investment Bank, has led you to Stuart and Setpoint and and the company and, and the platform that they built. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think it sets the stage for why you felt so strongly about Setpoint and obviously Stuart and his partners as founders. It's funny, we actually have a lot of overlapping history. So I first met Stu over a decade ago as an associate at Spark Capital, actually up in Boston. I was basically the one kind of non-partner at the firm at the time. And the firm had actually already invested in in Stu's prior company, Signpost, at that point. But it's really kind of when I first started going deep in the fintech ecosystem. Ended up helping source and seed companies like Plaid and Orchard and a number of other businesses. And then ultimately left and started a fintech company, as you mentioned, called Bond Street at the end of 2013, which was in the small business lending space. At a time when a lot of the data that we thought we would need to sort of understand the financial health of small businesses was just becoming available online via API. And we thought we could deliver a much better customer experience to the average kind of Main Street small business owner who was still walking to a branch, printing out their financials, waiting six to eight weeks to get a decision without any clarity on whether they'd be approved. Instead, you could kind of sync your financial accounts. We can make loan decisions up to a million dollars in minutes. Importantly, in that company, we raised, I don't know, $11.5 million in equity, but something like $900 million in debt capacity from two kind of primary counterparties. One was Jefferies, the investment bank, who really took a first bet on us and gave us our first $100 million of their balance sheet before we raised our Series A. They ended up committing another $300 million in capacity. And then we signed up a large 40-act mutual fund who gave us another $500 million capacity. So we had unlimited debt capital. The challenge, and from my experience, was so much time and focus and resources were spent building an amazing front-end customer experience for the small business owner, when in fact, probably our most important counterparty relationship was with Jefferies and this mutual fund. And there was actually very little software to manage that dynamic. The process of originating, in our case, small business loans required 
gathering a myriad of financial documents, financials, credit histories, tax filings. We had a third party typically validate that loan fit within the sort of buy box or eligibility criteria set by Jefferies and this other firm. And then you had a report on the ongoing performance of that portfolio against a complicated set of parameters, delinquency, default rates, concentration limits. It was basically a giant Excel file and a box folder and, and humans essentially aggregating that information. And the reality was if you screwed up, it could be lights out. Right. And again, this is really the inventory effectively that kind of fuels the business. And so I felt, again, from firsthand experience that there was always, I believed, a business to be built in this category to really abstract away the complexity of managing your capital markets relationships. Fast forward, Stu and I had stayed in touch over the years. I had tremendous respect for what he did with his prior company, which also sold into small businesses. Just amazing kind of grit and resilience, building that business to significant revenue. And then ultimately, you'll give your background, but selling it. And when he started talking to me about what he was thinking, it clicked. Actually, not initially, we can get into that, but I think as the kind of vision and ambition for the company evolved, we were really excited to get involved and thought we could be quite helpful. It's funny though, before we get to that, Stu, back in 2013, didn't Bitcoin fix all this? Was it, wasn't that, like you just mentioned so many things, you guys could have just bought Bitcoin at 300 bucks back then and uh, <laughs> you could have failed five times trying to fix that problem. Or Amazon and, and it would have been It would have been amazing. No, I'm just kidding yeah. here. No, but it's funny when I was like looking at Setpoint and obviously I've gotten to know you over the last couple months a little bit, a lot of what David just described and the problems that he had. And again, your company was not set up to fix those problems, but you felt as a founder, they were very evident. And it seems like that is a huge part about what you guys created at Setpoint. We think there's this really important system of trust and credit that powers life's most important purchases. And that could be a small business, getting a loan from a company like David's prior company, Bond Street. It could be getting a house, getting a car. All those transactions relied on kind of trust that the information's correct, the terms of loan are going to be followed, people are going to get paid back. When that system functions well, we think the economy grows, people get access to capital they need to live their lives. And as David said, there's a lot of tech investment on the front end of those transactions. So if you're thinking about getting a lease from Carvana, getting a loan from SoFi, that experience, I think there's a lot of great technology there, but there's the back end that David mentioned. So the connection between this, the originator of those loans and their sources of funding that could be banks, warehouse lines, securizations. That basically runs on FTP folders, Excel, email, and some monopoly vendors that have been around for a long time. And to your point on blockchain, the industry is pretty slow to adopt new technology. I think that actually results in an opportunity where there is, for, for us, there's a lot of opportunity to make this process a lot faster and more accurate in a way that is better for originators because a lot faster and it's better for lenders because there's less risk. So we think if we can do that. We build trust in our system of credit. We think we can drive the economy. It's a pretty kind of esoteric part of the value chain that's not well understood, but we think it could be a great business. So wait, and I know I was joking before about Bitcoin fixing <laughs> this. Um, you know, that was the meme. But like, you know, when you think about blockchain and this immutable database that's supposed to do all these sorts of things, when you were starting the company, I'm assuming that there were some folks out there who were thinking about maybe solving these sorts of problems using blockchain. Was it something that you guys took a look at or it was just you had your own ideas about? I believe in taking like a first principles approach. So you don't want to be a solution looking for a problem. And, and if you really look at, okay, what are like the jobs that are getting done now? What are not getting done? There is this like database aspect of it that eventually some Web3 technology could play a role. But I think the core kind of version one problems we're solving are not you know, really at all related. To so how did you arrive at the sort of end markets that you did for Setpoint? And I'd love to hear about the platform. And, and yeah. so what are some of the companies that you are partnering with? So we really started in PropTech. So our first customer is a company called Homeward. They basically do bridge lending. So if you're buying and selling a house simultaneously, they'll basically buy the second house for you with cash while you sell the first one and get you a mortgage on the second one. So the inspiration was we were spending a lot of time with companies like that and similar problems to what David described of they would invest a lot in the experience with their consumers who are getting the loans. And, and a lot of their effort was around acquisition and driving revenue. They had this kind of back-end process to manage their warehouse lines, which was really painful, slow, and inefficient. We really started embedded with those customers, working with them to solve like real problems. And I think that kind of resulted in us building technology that was broadly useful, even outside of prop tech. So now we're in auto loans, aviation finance, litigation. Like there, there's a lot of categories that I think this applies to. And, and your service is a, a SaaS offering. There's really four products we offer. So one of them we call collateral managers, basically an operating system where any of these businesses that are originating loans keep track of data and documents that they, and all the requirements for them to get access to their funding. So what David mentioned, you know, if you guys were getting access to capital from Jefferies, there's a lot of work that has to get done for you to do that. The second one is what we call portfolio managers. All of these companies basically have 200 to 500 page loan agreement per facility. And some of our customers have 20 facilities. So it's a really big file. And basically what they have to do is reflect that in Excel. So they have a very complex Excel sheet, multiple tabs. 
multiple owners, no version control. They've got to upload data, send that to the lender, get to consensus, and then the, they wire the money. We basically reflect that in software. So the price of a borrowing request is zero. We can ensure that every request is compliant. We can do forecasting, so it's not going to be lights out if you make a mistake. We reflect that in software. That's Portfolio Manager. And both of those are software. Then we have two kind of service businesses. We bought a company uh, called Resolute that does diligence. So they review things like, is there a lien on a title? The lender will require that. We do that in a way that's very fast and accurate. And then the last one is calculation agent, which basically certifies that the borrowing request is compliant. So you put those four together and you can take a process that previously took weeks. Now it takes an hour and we can certify the lender that this is always going to be accurate. So again, David, this is something that these are all things that you had dealt with as a founder and in and around as an investor, you know, very focused on fintech. What was it about Setpoint that you found so interesting? Obviously, you had a lot of experience with this. I think there was a, a few different things. One, it was obviously the individuals. Anytime you're investing in an early stage company, it's really you're backing the founders first and foremost. And I gave a little history with Stu. Ben and Michael, who are the two other co-founders of the business, had a similar background, actually, to Stu's. Ben had started a company called Yodel, also in a, a similar category. I think you had, at one point, contemplated even merging the, those two companies. And then he and Michael had started another company called OpCity that they grew and sold very quickly in the PropTech space. The two of them, actually, I think, were lending capital to PropTech companies, primarily in Austin at the time. And what was interesting, I remember when we first caught up, when you were considering your next move, you were like, I th I'm thinking of joining these guys to build a credit fund providing working capital into this ecosystem of fintech and proptech companies. And I remember thinking, there's definitely a business to be built there, providing kind of warehouse financing into this ecosystem. But you always struck me very much as like an operator, less as sort of a fund manager specifically. And it got very interesting to me over time when that fund actually became a really interesting kind of go-to-market strategy for what became actually a really compelling software business. What they did, which I hadn't seen, honestly, in almost any other company, was they basically went to a lot of these prop tech companies and said, look, we have faster, more flexible credit capital. But by the way, if you want our capital, you need to use our software. And they had built a lot of the products that he had described. And again, it provided kind of an easier sell and onboarding for a lot of these smaller companies that maybe didn't yet have kind of larger institutional counterparties. It got very interesting to me when we started talking to some of these prop tech customers and realizing that they weren't just using the software to manage the relationships with Setpoint's credit fund. They were using it also to manage the relationship with Apollo, with Goldman Sachs, with Credit Suisse, with Barclays, with this whole ecosystem of other large asset-backed lenders. And there was this potential that I've always believed in for effectively a network effect, right? And if you draw an analogy to another business that Bonstreet was one of the first customers of, Spark was an early investor in, Andreessen is a big investor that Goldman actually helped Goldman invest in, is a company called Carta. And Carta... Again, totally different market, but similar in some ways in that they started with kind of this unsexy back office problem, which was the cap table, which was sort of the database of ownership, right? And you had a bunch of interesting counterparties, right? You have the company, its employees, and importantly, its investors. And what Carta did, which I thought was quite interesting, was they built significant distribution among the startup ecosystem such that at some point they could go to a VC firm and say, look, 50% of your portfolio is already using Carta. Why don't you encourage the other 50% to adopt the same product? And by the way, you can manage everything in one place and we'll build you tools and analytics and fun admin, essentially services for the venture ecosystem. And I've always believed, again, different market, that there's sort of a similar analogy to be built here, where if you build significant enough distribution among kind of the fintech ecosystem, at some point, and we already are getting there, will become a significant enough percentage of, let's say, Goldman's warehouse lending portfolio, such that they have an incentive to refer other borrowers, to pull us into other asset classes. And you sort of get this flywheel effect. And building sort of standardized information on both sides of that kind of software network, I think has the potential to unlock lots of other avenues of businesses, a capital markets business, who knows. But it's that sort of virality and kind of network effect in kind of a wonky part of the world that most people don't understand which I find super compelling. You worked within an investment bank and, and you know that how antiquated some of those kind of middle office processes were. Uh, Stu, did you ever have any experience working in a big financial institution like that? And uh, did you know it from the inside? And I guess, how did you like uh, identify these end markets? And I know they're dependent on lending. And I'm just yep. curious, when you listen to David talk about it, it seems like there's lots of other sectors within the economy that you, the platform that you've created, the service you've created could yep. be really applicable. I started my career at Bain, so not as big and bureaucratic as uh, some, some of the places David may have worked. But I think I was aware of the problem. And, and what kind of excited me about it was that this was such a big industry that wasn't well understood. So like when you talk to people that are in the space, I think they really get it. But it's 
honestly, it's a little sleepy from the outside. Like people don't really understand or think about this piece of the value chain. And that was exciting. The, the other thing that I was excited about is there is this kind of huge moat you have to jump over to get the trust of an originator or lender to kind of approve you as a software vendor. And I think that's the reason why there's an opportunity, why this kind of category hasn't evolved and picked up new technology that makes the process better. And so to David's point, we basically started Subpoint Capital. So we started a credit fund. We raised fund one was just under 70 million bucks. We loaned that to a lot of these prop tech companies. And then we were able to build software by doing, right? It'd be really hard for us to get our anchor customers without software. And it's really hard to build software without an anchor customer. So by becoming a lender, that was uh, really a great way for us to learn what we needed and build it and get adoption. And then David's point, what we saw is like most of our counterparties have multiple facilities. They'd have one small one from us. They'd have a bunch of others. They would adopt that technology across. So that was how we got over the trust barrier. All right, let's talk about this, like broadening it out a little bit, because I think it's interesting since you started the company, think about where you know your counterparties are within financial services, obviously real estate. We've talked about autos. It's been probably three of the most volatile years, good and bad, in, in all three of those sectors in a way. What are, you know, put, putting your Bain hat on a little bit here, like from a macro standpoint, where are we? Because, you know, we had these really weird disconnects with the pandemic and the supply chain issues and then these changing demographics and work from home and all of that sort of stuff. And then we've had interest rates in our lifetimes. We've never seen them rise as quickly as they have. And we haven't really felt the knock-on effects in the economy here yet. So I'm just curious, what are some of the things that you're seeing? You're talking to uh, people operating in these sectors every day. I'm just curious, like from a macro standpoint, any thoughts there? I, I think zero interest rate policy is bad policy, yeah. right? I, I think about it like a shot clock in a basketball game, right? If there was no shot clock in a basketball game, it'd be a lot less productive. There wouldn't be as much differentiating kind of good players and bad players. It's the same, I think, in credit markets. So when there are interest rates, I, I think it, it differentiates companies that are really creating value from consumers and those that aren't. It allows those those companies to attract talent, attract more kind of demand. So I think it's a good thing. I think rates are probably artificially high now. I think the market would agree with that uh, and they'll come down forever to get a hold of uh, inflation. If you look at auto homes, businesses, like all of these transactions are going to continue, uh, right? So there, there might be a higher threshold, but I think that can be a healthy thing overall for the economy. And I think hopefully next year rates start to come down. If inflation doesn't come down, I mean, one of the things that I think that kind of uh, threw uh, the global economy, financial markets for a loop in, in 2022 and early in 22, the Fed was really targeting inflation caused by supply chain disruption yeah. from the pandemic. And then all of a sudden you have Russia invade Ukraine and you start thinking about the reliance of Europe on natural gas and crude and, and the like here. And we had that huge spike and once like some of this stuff becomes embedded, as you guys know, you're the HBS guys. I'm just some dumb pen undergrad guy. Yeah. Once it becomes embedded, it's really hard to get out. And a lot of folks would tell you, and, and I know you guys look at a ton of economic data across a whole host of industries. There's been in housing and education and healthcare, there's been lots of inflation. The CPI doesn't read it. You know what I mean? So right now we have Fed funds at on the upper end, five and a half percent, but we still have inflation that's 3% as the CPI reads it. We know it's higher and we know, just think about what's going on with the UAW and stuff and think about the concessions they're making. Wage inflation is here to stay. So we might have a Fed funds that settles at a much higher level than any of us expect with, I think the Fed is going to have to acknowledge the fact that the way that they've been measuring inflation is probably going to need to be adjusted. They're not going to say they're wrong. And, and we might have to get used to all that. I'm just curious, David, from your standpoint, when you think about this, you yeah. do early stage funding of lots of different businesses. And again, to your point about 09, when we went to ZERP right, in the GFC, and that was the, the immediate sort of reaction to it. Lots of great companies were founded in that time period. So for you, is, is it important to you when you think about rates in the macro like this? It paints a backdrop on anything we do. But the reality is when you're investing in an early stage company, the outcomes are happening, if you're lucky, in a decade. And I can't forecast what's going to happen next quarter, let alone in the next 10 years. And so it's much more important, in my opinion, to focus on, are we building something people want? Are they willing to pay us economically profitable money? Do we have a defensible or compounding competitive advantage in the business? And I think the macro kind of takes care. It is what it is, and, and the business can take care of itself. That said, I do think it's important when we're building a company to identify what are the products that we have that, are, that most resonate in the current macro environment. And so I think in a more low interest rate market, sure, like the reality is that origination volumes were probably up a lot. Like the velocity of transactions were higher. However, when you have elevated interest rates, the need to focus and drive efficiency of your balance sheet and your equity becomes more real. And then the need, again, to manage those counterparty relationship, because you may have a rate with that lender that, you, that was priced a year and a half ago. You don't want to disrupt that relationship. And one of the interesting things, again, from experience, and I wish I had 
essentially this product where we're running Bond Street is by having both the software and kind of the services that Stu is describing, it allows sort of an originator to move a transaction off their balance sheet much faster. And why is that important? Otherwise, you're using equity to hold that asset on your balance sheet before you're able to sell or finance it by your counterparty. Equity is getting more expensive in this market, or you're drawing down on a kind of mezzanine debt facility, which is also more expensive at this environment. And so if you can move a transaction off your balance sheet that would otherwise take you a week, and now you can do it in 40 minutes, the, the actual like cost savings of doing so because you're using a software product has like real immediate economic impact. And again, I think that's what we're seeing in this business is sure, there may be less immediate demand for kind of the origination side of the software product, although people still need and want to drive efficiency in their workflows, but a lot more kind of demand on the kind of portfolio management and kind of services side of the business. But I don't know if you agree with that. I think the commonality, if you look at kind of 2009, like obviously we had zero interest rate policy, but it was also arguably like a tough time to start a tech company. Yeah. But I think as a result, there were a lot of like very disciplined startups like Uber was founded around that. A lot of big companies that came out of that time period. I think now there's less capital available. Like the pricing has gone down for tech startups. People are borrowers are very focused on cost. And, and that's a benefit to us, to David's point. If we can help them hold something on balance sheet for a day instead of a week, that's a game changer. They're focused on that. When capital was flowing a little more freely, like that was less of a, a focus. Last week on the pod, we had my good friend, Stuart Stopp, who's a, the co-founder of Current here. You guys are investors. And I had Joe Marchese, who's also a good friend at Human Ventures, who was an early investor. And we talked a little bit about New York City and just how obviously Stuart founded the company here and Joe, his company's really focused on this ecosystem. It seems like David, you guys, 80 folks here in New York City, um, pretty amazing. And obviously Stu, you founded the company here, the proximity to Wall Street, I'm sure is a really important part about that. You mentioned network effects. And one of the things that I always found really interesting is like, yes, for the companies you invest in and you think about product market fit and, and, and how, but it's also like when you guys were out there, like I've been to your offices on Sand Hill Road. When you look at this ecosystem, you can just feel the network effects. Do you feel that's happening here in New York? Because I feel like New York City is one of the biggest beneficiaries of this diaspora from Silicon Valley. And, and I know that Silicon Valley is never going away. But think about Hollywood and Wall Street and D.C. and these other pockets of areas. Talk to us a little bit about New York City and I guess the proximity to a lot of your counterparties here. Yeah. So obviously love New York. I've been here since 2010. So I started my last company here as well. For a set point, a lot of our customers are here, right? A lot of the originators are in the city. So it's great to be close to them. But then I think from a team perspective, like the city has a lot of talented people that are hungry, young, motivated, want to work at a startup. I think it's a little less homogenous than San Francisco. No offense to, to that city, but we have people work at the company where they've never worked as startup before, but they've had a career in finance. And you know, we have some people that worked at other startups in the city of Cambridge. So we have a pretty diverse team. And I think New York's a great place to hire. We're remote. So we're here, Park City and Austin, but we go in the office at least two days a week. And I, I think that's really important. Yeah. How, how are you guys thinking about it? And how did this focus on reopening New York and, and going big? Because you, uh, by personnel standards, you have to be like the one of the largest VC firms here in New York, I'm just thinking. I haven't done the benchmarking, but yeah. I'm sure that's actually true. Look, I'd say a few things. Like one, I've always believed that opportunities live between fields of expertise. And I personally really enjoy exploring those intersections. And first of all, it's one of the reasons I've always loved fintech because I've always viewed it more as a horizontal than a vertical and it is becoming embedded in everything. But I think that analogy is true for New York City and for technology, right? Technology is also horizontal, right? And I think the most interesting companies that have been representative, in my opinion, of the New York City tech ecosystem are those that intersect with a lot of the large incumbent industries that have already existed for a long time here in New York. Before we, I think, started recording, we were chatting about the Warby guys, like, great example. Like, there's a whole wave of amazing kind of physical products and brands that were built here in New York City. You had incredibly successful ad tech companies that were built here and evolved because of the kind of large ad industry. Obviously, fintech, which is where I spend most of my time, has, I think, seen tremendous amount of kind of growth and kind of vibrance in this ecosystem. And the sort of permeability of talent between a lot of the incumbent institutions and the upstarts is getting a lot more fluid. And then we're seeing that in healthcare and in crypto and lots of other categories. So I think part of it was just an interest in backing the best talent, right? And a lot of those, it's really hard to bet against in New York City. If you're a 20-something-year-old ambitious person, there is a real network effect that exists, a human network effect that exists in a city like this. And how could we not be here? But you're right. Historically, Andreessen as a firm was not just U.S. centric, but very West Coast centric. And I think Mark has, and I think he was early and right with the idea that there was very much a talent and density and kind of human network effect being in Silicon Valley. And the people that had scaled big companies of prior generations were available to help scale the next ones. I think COVID, not fully, obviously, but disaggregated some of that sort of physical network effect and made remote work a lot more possible. 
And so people who I think were living physically in Silicon Valley because that's where the job prospects were suddenly said, where would I actually want to live? My quality of life for culture, for my family. And a lot of those people chose to move here to New York City. It created the opportunity to really help plant the flag here in New York. It's funny, though. I think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning for this because this recession that we're all convinced that was going to happen right about now, last year, when the stock market was down 30% at its lows from the highs in 2021, has been pushed out, right? And I think a recession kind of fixes a lot of those things where people have got convinced about the productivity gains, the remote work, their access to talent and the like here. At the end of the day, though, culture, and this is something that I was at an event that you guys hosted with a bunch of your employees and counterparties in your ecosystem. And there was probably easily a hundred people in there. There's probably a couple dozen of your folks there. And you've built now two companies, like building culture is really important. And so I feel like when the recession finally comes, I think there's going to be a pull back to the office in a meaningful way and a whole host of companies. And then we're going to find maybe how like culture creation, we're going to see the benefits of that again. We've forgotten about that a little bit. Does that make sense a little bit, Stu? Or no? I think it does. Even if you look at the team that I have, the team that wants to be in the office, right? They want to be together and it's because of the culture. It's because they believe in what they're doing. So I, I, I agree. I think that meeting, you know, we're a remote company. We do a lot of work over Zoom, but that kind of in-person experience, like hosting events or in the office, that's something I think is really important to get right. Let's talk about the elephant that's in every room in tech right now, and it's AI. We kind of alluded to it before. And David, I've read a bunch of your stuff, and I've listened to what you've had to say about fintech and, and it permeating every industry. And we'll, we can save that for another pod. I'd actually love to to go deep on some of that because I think there, I had a, a conversation with a guy named Chad Anderson yesterday and he runs a, a firm called Space Capital and it's, he wrote a book, uh, The Space Economy. I'm thinking sci-fi stuff. I'm a first level thinker here. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. But he's just giving me all of these examples of just how the space, like the, the sorts of technologies that we just don't even think much about GPS and the like, how they're being worked into everyday sort of tech outside of just say your cell phone and stuff like that. So I, I love having conversations like that, just opening up what the next thing is a little bit here. But again, it's something that's captivated the public markets every night on CNBC, on Fast Money, we're talking about AI. And there's very few ways to talk about it. We can talk about the hyperscalers. We can talk about these big platform companies. We can talk about the chip providers right now. And there really aren't too many commercialized applications. The thing that got it going was ChatGPT4 and the advancements. And But we've already seen the excitement around that usage data fall off a bit. And I know you guys know all about tech hype cycles and the like here. You studied it. You've applied them in your everyday investing or building. Where do you think we are right now as, let's say, an operator first? You, you have a technology platform. You're building these things. You're deploying technology every day, trying to get it better. How is the disconnect between what you've been doing, the hype now that exists, and, and if you think that things are going to moderate a little bit as far as the, the excitement in and around this technology? I'm definitely very excited about AI. I think it does apply to us. Again, you think of, is it a solution looking for a problem? You're actually you know solving a problem. In our case, you can take the core of what we do, right? Which is not, we don't lead with AI. And for any of our counterparties, let's say you're an originator, you have 20 facilities. Each one has a 450 page loan agreement. You've got a lot of assets. You've got tens of thousands of documents. We could build an LLM on top of that. And we, we have done this. That's an agent where you could ask a questions. How many of my facilities have this specific term? Show me all the assets that meet this criteria. It could give you that information in a way that's a lot faster than you could without AI. So a lot of these use cases, in my opinion, are you lead by solving a problem with software. Like we, we have this functionality. Now, as a result, we have a lot of data for our customers and you could apply an LLM to it in a way that's really useful, right? It solves an actual problem. I'll let David talk about self-driving cars and maybe some of the more general stuff. But uh, yeah, but, but, yeah, so but that, I just wanted yeah. one question here, because it's not like all of a sudden at set point on January 5th, when the only thing trending on Twitter was ChatGPT4, you guys are all of a sudden like, we better figure out what our LLM, these are things that you've been I thinking yeah. about and implementing. I, I think that's the wrong, yeah. So, so you could easily say for us, like with all the data, like we should be using Web3 and that's probably not now, but a year ago was... We, we didn't really see any value in that. Uh, I, I think today, like you, you look at it, like the, the innovation for us is not that we're like better at, at, at building these models. I mean, we're using GPT-4, that's just available. It's that we have this interesting data set and you can apply it. And I think there'll be more of this outside of set point of just having an all-knowing agent within the platform that the user can have a conversation with and get information that they need faster. And so in our case, we think, okay, this is a problem that exists independent of AI. There's a job being done, right? There's 
someone at one of our customers that has a question, has to open up a bunch of loan agreements or reach out to a bunch of law firms and have them do it for them. Could an LLM potentially do that a lot faster and more efficiently? We think the answer is yes. So we've deployed that and people are using it. They're liking it. Yeah. And, and so David, I'm just curious because I know as a firm, you guys have focused on a lot of consumer facing things, but also the excitement around ChatGPT4 was that, oh, here's a consumer facing product that had this massive uptake in a very short period of time is going to be subscription based. I, I'm just curious how you think about that because it's probably not surprising that you've seen the usage. You probably haven't opened the app or, or used it in weeks. If, if not, it was like a, like a parlor game a little bit now. Are you guys, and, and again, you are not Johnny Completely's to this whatsoever. Are you more focused on how companies like Stu's will use this technology to be just a, offer a better service that your end customer may not ever feel it. You know what I mean? It's just a, a seamless process that you're delivering. Totally. To say we're excited is probably an understatement. I, I think the firm is really orienting quite heavily around AI because I think we believe that it's new computing primitive that will exist, kind of what you were saying earlier, across everything. So yesterday we actually had a, an event that we called AIR, which was uh, AI revolution. And we had some of the leading entrepreneurs in AI present on kind of what they're building. Dylan from Figma was talking about how they're leveraging AI in the design process. Noam Shazir, who invented the transformer at Google, who started a company called Character AI, which is building these sort of companion applications, was there talking about his company that we're fortunate enough to be investors in. Ali from Databricks is powering at the infrastructure level a lot of the kind of new applications that are being built in AI. And so I think so far, and the, the ecosystem is changing very quickly, we've mostly invested to date in kind of new consumer modalities and applications and kind of new consumer experiences. Eleven Labs is another example, which is building a voice model that you've done a lot of public speaking. It can literally ingest all of the intonations that you've had in the way you speak and, and can translate text to speech and sound exactly like Dan Nathan. It's oh, wild. Geez, that sounds dangerous. Uh, soon there'll be like a video version of you and we're all out of jobs. It'll I'm be just, much I'm just better. Kidding, like, yeah. So a lot of like the fake Drake songs, there's a yeah. lot of interesting stuff happening with that. And then we've been investing at the infrastructure layer in companies like Pinecone, which is building kind of the vector database right now and in, in again, this emerging AI stack. One hypothesis, and I think part of the reason you haven't seen that many like dedicated AI native kind of workflow applications is because the infrastructure layer was still so dynamic. I think it's now finally settling so that entrepreneurs have more comfort that they can build on that stack and that it's not going to be replaced by a much better thing in two weeks. I get really excited because we spend a lot of time talking to a lot of the incumbent institutions, again, in my world in financial services. And I think the value of what AI and these LLMs can deliver is just very clear, right? It's obvious at the board level, at the CEO level. And so it's becoming a top priority for the biggest institutions you can think of, they're still figuring out exactly where they're going to apply this product or this technology. We had a co-president of one of the largest financial services firms in the world in our office a few weeks ago, who also runs the wealth management division, talking about like, what do we need to know to make our wealth managers more productive? How do we sort of serve our customers better with this technology? I, and I saw this within Goldman Sachs, thousands and thousands of very smart, highly paid people doing manual tasks that should really be solved both with enterprise software, but ultimately could probably be done a lot more efficiently with AI. And that's at Goldman Sachs, which is a firm that you know has the resources and talent. They have their employees. I, I interviewed David Solomon last yeah. year and it, it was like a closed door thing, but yeah. uh, it, it was pretty fascinating. I mean, half their employees are under the age of 30 and half of them are like engineers, which is just amazing. Totally. And he has gotten such sadly, and this is a prediction, I mean, he's probably out by the end of the year. He's been there for five or six years or something like that. He seems like the anti-investment bank CEO, but he gets a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. And so it'll be interesting to see the course in which Goldman goes, but I suspect David Solomon's going to have a very interesting next act, if you will. And it's probably going to look something that looks more like a fintech company than 200-year-old investment bank or something like that. I really appreciate you coming here. This is a great conversation. We could have done it for a lot longer, and I hope you guys will come back. So Stu Wall, CEO, co-founder of Setpoint, and David Haber, GP at A16Z. Thank you guys for coming on OK Computer. Thanks Thank so much you. for having us. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.